We are in Acts 16 again this morning. Do you ever struggle with cynicism? Cynics tend to wrestle with doubts, with skepticism. Sometimes they disbelieve other people. They, they question outcomes, whether or not things will actually work out. On a secular level, we have been described as being in an age of cynicism, a very cynical world. For years, surveys have showed that a majority of, Ameri of Americans believe the nation is on the wrong track and are not optimistic about the future. The, the, the sides in those pollings probably swap every four or eight years, depending on, on who's the president, but the reality is most Americans struggle with some level of cynicism. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we can struggle with this cynicism that infects our everyday thinking about what God can or will do. We believe in God, we have trusted in Jesus Christ, and yet we're still tempted to be cynical in our thoughts. I, I don't know or think sometimes God hears my prayers. I, I don't feel like there's hope for me. I've prayed for this child, this spouse, this parent, this friend for a long time, and, and I wonder if they're ever going to get saved. I, I don't know if I'll ever feel real lasting joy. I don't know if I can persist with this kind of pain. I, I don't know if I'll ever have victory over this sin. I, I think God has relegated me to singleness or relegated us to childlessness, all of these sorts of questions and doubts. We, we read about God's goodness, we, we hear other people's testimonies, and, and we know what, what Scripture says is true, but, but at times we grow cold to the idea that God is really involved in the everyday details of our lives, at least in the way we want Him to be. Paul Miller, in his great book on Prayer describes cynicism as one of his greatest struggles in prayer and as one of the master temptations of this age. He, he defines cynicism as low-level doubt that opens the door for bigger doubt. We begin to question what God is doing, why his timing seems slow, whether or not he really cares in the same way that he seems to for others. And, and over time, that can deaden our sense of hope and expectancy. Instead of, instead of believing and anticipating that God will just do good work in our lives, we sort of resign ourselves to, to feel like we're just stuck. Whatever lot we have is where we'll be and where we'll always be and, and things won't change. And we sort of settle there so that we won't be disappointed if things don't change. This morning, we're going we're gonna to finish Acts chapter 16. We will, over the next three weeks, complete chapter 17 and 18 before we take a break in the book of Acts in December. And yes, December is almost here. Uh, but for this morning, we are in Acts chapter 16, Paul's second missionary journey. This is the journey now into the region of Macedonia. And, and what I, I hope to do this morning is to help us Stand in awe of the power of God as an antidote to doubt and cynicism. Jesus works in powerful ways through his spirit, in his people, in ordinary people's lives. And we need to see that because he still does that today. And so as we walk through this passage, five displays of God's power that should give us hope as we follow him today. We're going to see the power of God to lead, to 
open, to free, to fill, and to change, to lead as in directing his servants precisely where he has them bring the gospel even against their own intuitive sense of where they should be, to open the heart of a Gentile woman and, and then use her in the gospel ministry to free a girl who is in spiritual and physical bondage, to fill his servants with joy and peace amidst horrible circumstances that they are in, and finally to change the hearts of a prison guard and his family, to change their lives. So we left off verses 9 and 10 last week. God was giving to Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia, from the region of Macedonia, who was saying, come over and help us. So if you'll pick up with me in verse 11. Acts 16, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. Stop there. Let's take a moment and just look at the map, remind ourselves of what's involved in this kind of journey, Paul's second missionary journey, helpful for us to see. Troas is the, the coastal city. Um, if you follow that sort of arced blue line toward the top of your screen to the point right on the coast, that's where Troas is on the edge of the Aegean Sea. And so they are going to set sail from Troas in that region of Mycenae, and they are going to cross to an island where they will spend the night, and then they will sail on again to Neapolis, now over in the Macedonian area, and then travel by land on into Philippi, what is modern-day Greece. We look at the map, and we've seen Paul's journeys before, and, and perhaps we don't catch the significance of this. This is huge. This is the movement of the gospel into the continent of Europe. It is a monumental shift in that, as you'll recall last week, Paul and Silas were planning to stay in the region where they were, either moving south to Ephesus or moving north to Bithynia. And instead, God takes them now further to the West to bring the gospel, to direct them to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into a place where it has not been heard. So like Abraham in, in Genesis, when God leads him out of Ur to this land that he has never seen, like Moses, when God leads Moses to lead the Hebrew people out of Egypt to that promised land, through that wilderness, God is now directly moving Paul and Silas, again, against their own intuition of where they think they should go. God is specifically directing them to this region that hasn't heard the gospel. This is the hand of God powerfully moving his gospel to where it needs to be into a largely Gentile, um, idolatrous kind of culture. This is, this is different in some ways from the places where Paul has gone before, whereas we've seen there tend to be um, communities, significant communities of Jewish people who are at least living in some anticipation of a Messiah. This is now a new place, very little Jewish population, mostly Gentile, mostly polytheistic, mostly idolatrous, mostly far turned from the God, the creator God, with very little knowledge, if any, even about this creator God. We know that by his power, 
God has been doing this for, for the 2,000-year history of the church, moving Christians to places and people and conversations where, where we are given the opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and see him lead people out of darkness. This is how God works in, in directing his people. Philippi was, as, as Paul says here, as Luke says here, I should say, a Roman colony. There's no mention of a synagogue. In fact, as we read on, we're going to, to see that there was probably only a very small Jewish population. Uh, Philippi is firmly in Satan's grip. It is blinded to the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus is an unknown. The creator God is an unknown. They are in spiritual darkness, and this is where God powerfully leads his servants. So verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we, were, where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right, so God first leads his servants to this new place. And now we see him open the heart of a Gentile woman to not only bring her to faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to bring her right into the ministry of the gospel. She becomes an active participant in the spread of this gospel almost immediately. The fact that this group of praying women is meeting outside of the city gates along the riverside would suggest to us that the, the community of those who believed in the creator God, in the, the God of the Jewish people, was tiny and maybe even viewed by local authorities as being sort of cult-like in that they had no place to meet and, and their only place for this sort of fringe group was out there by the river. Lydia comes from the region of Asia. If you remember when we looked on the map, that's where Paul had been with Silas over in that region of Asia. That's where Thyatira is. The description indicates that she was probably a Gentile who becomes a, a worshiper, becomes one who is curious about the God of the Jewish people, who is beginning to follow after him and seek his ways. And it would also appear that she was of some means, that she had some prosperity. The fact that she is a seller of Purple goods, of goods dyed purple, that is the color of royalty, that is an expensive sort of treatment of fabric. And so presumably uh, these are goods that, that could be even made over in Asia, and she is sort of the merchant that distributes them, that sells them in Macedonia. Uh, she has some ability to not only come to faith in Christ by work of God's grace in her, but then to, to participate in the ministry by bringing these guys into her home, by providing for them, her and her family supplying for them. And so as Paul spoke and Lydia listened, God opens her heart, it says. God, God moves to the very core of Lydia's being to change her, to, to save her, to cause her to willingly embrace what she heard. Theology, we call this this effectual call, the fact that God actually works in someone's heart. A heart of stone, a heart that is set to reject the gospel, is now made soft and a heart of flesh that now embraces, that repents of sin and embraces Christ. And that is what God is doing here as he opens Lydia's heart now to embrace the gospel. What's important for us to remember again here is, is Paul is not 
going by his typical method, which would have been you go into the city, and, he, and it's described here as a significant city in a Roman colony. Normally, you would go, and he would go to the, the Jewish synagogue. He would find people there who understood the law and the prophets, who had some anticipation of a Messiah, and he would preach Jesus to them. Historians tell us that Jewish custom was that there would not be a synagogue in a town unless there were 10 Jewish men. And so it is our assumption that the Jewish population in Philippi is, again, very small. And, and so there's a sense in which we're just conjecturing here, but, but here's Paul and Silas who really hadn't anticipated going that direction, who had other plans. God leads them here by this Macedonian call, and there's got to be at least some initial sense of this just feels like a bust. We've come here, and it's clear, Luke says, they have been there several days as they've been in the city, and they've sort of been trying to understand the city, and they supposed there was this prayer gathering. They've heard something on a very small level. Well, the people that you're trying to talk to, we think maybe you might associate with these ladies who meet outside the city over by the river and pray. And so in the midst of this pagan city, there's got to be some question at this point of, now what? How, how do we proceed at this point? There, th this is a, a city that has a temple to the um, worship of the Roman emperor, common in Roman colonies. The Roman emperor was declared to be a savior. There was also a temple in this city to the um, long-dead Macedonian king who it was named after, King Philip, so Philippi named after, and within that temple, there are statues of 12 other gods who are to be worshipped alongside, and so there are just multiple deities. Worship itself is not a foreign concept, but the idea that there is one true God is completely far from these people's minds. And so they would not, in Philippi, have found the sort of eager audience that they had found in Antioch and some of the other places where there was a synagogue that at least understood Paul's credentials as a rabbi and said, go ahead, speak to us. Tell us what message you bring. Philippi is a difficult place to plant seeds of the gospel. And that's why this is so important, this first act in God opening the heart of Lydia. He takes this Gentile woman and he gloriously saves her. And she immediately steps into ministry by saying, I have a place where you can stay. I'm going to provide for you. We've already talked about this, all this traveling. There's, there's no electronic funds transfer that keep Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy going as they travel. They've got to work along the way. They've got to find ways to be supported in what they do. And so when you have someone like Lydia who says, I can provide a place for you and some meals for you. You can house here while you do this work. This is a blessing from God as they are ministering in a completely new area with seemingly no other base of contact. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. All right. We've seen two displays of God's power to remind us of what he can do and to, to be an antidote to our cynicism. He leads powerfully in directions we're not always having in mind. He leads. 
And then he opens the heart of Lydia, and now he dramatically, instantaneously frees this young girl from bondage to physical and spiritual slavery. God delivers her from torment and, and suffering that she has endured night and day. This is, this is a tragic story on so many levels. She is demon-possessed. She seems to have some magical ability to give people answers about the future. At least that's essentially how she's marketed by her owners. They are profiting greatly, it says, off the very madness that grips her. Her shouting as, as she follows after Paul, and again, this gives us some indication of what's happening in Philippi and that he says this is going on for days. As they are looking for places to minister, to proclaim Christ, they are being followed by this girl who is shouting about the most high God in this way of salvation. We need to understand that this is, this is not exactly her testifying to the truth. On, on, on a quick read, it sounds like, well, God somehow is working in this, but it is the demon that is leading her to say this. Now, we in our translations, it sort of throws us off a little bit because most English translations will capitalize most high God because that's the way we're used to referring to our God. That is a translator decision. It is the ordinary Greek word, or God, theos. It's not Adonai. It's not Yahweh. It's just saying that this is a God, in, in, in some level, a supreme God over others, something like Zeus. And, and grammatically, there is no article here before way of salvation. So when it says the way of salvation, again, that's, that's something the translators are supplying. It could be a way of salvation. It simply says way of salvation. Uh, the point is the demon was not evangelizing people for Jesus Christ. He was simply lumping Paul's God in with all of the other deities that the Philippians worship, just, just maybe a little bit more like Zeus. The culture would not have found what she was shouting offensive. They would have rather assumed, oh, Paul's just another itinerant preacher of some other kind of religion. These guys are preaching some way of salvation from some God who is supposedly higher than other gods. And it would not have even been clear to them what this salvation was. They, they, they were not, this culture was not saying, wow, we need a savior from our sin. The Roman emperor was described as a savior. And so when, when she's saying they preach, they speak of this God who is higher than others and a way of salvation, it is not offensive to unbelievers. If anything, it is sort of just conflating the message of the gospel in with all of the multiple gods that would have been worshipped in Philippi. And this goes on for days. And it grieves Paul. Our English translations say that he is greatly annoyed. I think we might read into this just a little bit because of the use of that word annoyed and assume that Paul just sort of had an impatient outburst. But the word also has the idea of pained or grieved, which is probably much more appropriate to the context here, in that this demon has been abusing this girl for a long time and is now mocking the name of Jesus Christ. Paul has grown indignant toward this demon, and this, this sort of syncretistic kind of message just blending Jesus in with all the rest that he is proclaiming. And the result is a confrontation between the demon and Jesus. Paul, in the name of Jesus, casts the demon out and Jesus wins with power. Within that hour, it says, the demon comes out. God 
powerfully set her free. This young lady's torment, possessed as she was, used for profit by evil men, held by this evil spirit, is over. And their, their sort of cash cow that they've been banking on is now ended, and they are angry. So if you pick up in verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. The power of God, we know, led his servants into a, a, a new land, not one they had planned on going. He opens the heart of a Gentile woman and brings her into ministry, frees and, a girl enslaved by a demon and by men, and now forth fills Paul and Silas joy right in the midst of pain and unjust suffering. After all this, look at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. That is remarkable in light of what has just transpired. The, the power of God in this now, just to set what's going on here, the magistrates, usually in a town like Philippi, were two men who were required to, to sort of settle civil cases, to, to be in charge of maintaining some order. The, the insignia that, that went with magistrates in a Roman city was this bundle of wooden rods about five feet in length tied together with an ax coming out of it. And, and the idea of that picture was one of punishment. They held the power to either beat with rods or, if need be, the power of execution. And so that's the magistrate's role, is to maintain order with a, a heavy hand, to, to, to let it be known that they will stop any chaos. Without so much as an opportunity to state their case, to speak in their own defense, Paul and Silas are accused and sentenced. And... The charge, the initial charge brought against them is purely discriminatory and again goes back to the, what we already are implying from the text about the Jews being a small minority in Philippi. They're, they're, the first response as they accuse them and they drag them there in verse 20 is these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They are going right in for bigotry and discrimination at this point. This is that small, we've heard about them elsewhere, we know what kind of troublesome minority they are, and, and, and immediately that's the, the first accusation. Baseless, and, 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 and yet that's the thing that they're bringing against them. The second accusation is they're violating Roman customs. What they're probably alluding to here is what they've picked up in a little bit of Paul's preaching, that he has come to preach the truth of Jesus Christ and that there is but one Savior. And so it is the call of the gospel to repent of your sin, to, to not believe in other gods, and to believe in God alone, the creator God. And that defied Roman custom in that sort of polytheistic, embrace anything, hyper-tolerance kind of culture, the idea of preaching a gospel about one Lord and one Savior certainly defied local customs. 
So the magistrates step in quickly. They want to quell the chaos. They order Paul and Silas to be beaten with the wooden rods and thrown into prison. This, this account is just filled with cruelty and injustice and wickedness from the, the, the evil slave owners who, who just perpetrate horror against this slave girl by, by profiting off of her, who then have the gall to become angry at her being set free, her being freed from this demon and, and finally experiencing normality, and they are angry at that. And then the, the whole lying and injustice of their approach to the magistrates, nothing when they come and say, hey, our prophet has been cut off here. This guy's ruined our business. No, they, they appeal to other things because they know that, that sort of sounds kind of self-centered and, and narrow, and instead they hide that under bigotry and false claims about how Paul and Silas are disturbing their, the peace. The governing legal authorities do nothing to protect the rights of Paul and Silas. We get to the end of it, we won't spend a great deal of time on this, but Paul will bring up to them when all is said and done, I am a Roman citizen. What you, what you did to me out in the square, what the magistrates did there at the judgment seat was so wrong, not just morally, but by your own laws, and that's what they are doing here. This will come back to haunt them in, in, in some measure later. Paul and Silas are dragged off to prison. They are locked in the inner prison in the dungeon. Their feet are held in, in stocks. Their backs are bruised and bleeding. They can't change positions. They can't lie back on the ground. There's no treatment for their wounds. They're trapped in a position, and, and, and you know this, when you, you just, when you get in a position, you wake up and, and maybe something's cramping in your legs or, or, or just you feel some kind of agony in your muscles in some way because they've, they've been sort of locked in a position and the soreness and the agony that they are going through in the middle of the night in a dark, cold dungeon. Paul and Silas sang praises to God. They didn't rage tweet. They didn't scream out in anger, even though they certainly humanly had a right to. They prayed, and they sang praises to God. And I just want to suggest to you again, this is a stunning display of God's power in what he's doing in their souls, in ministering to them in the darkness to give them peace and joy as they are being tortured without cause. Listen, by way of application, this is a good one for us to just pause and think about first. You and I often cannot control hard circumstances that come our way. There are situations we can flee. There is injustice we should oppose. People say or do things to us or about us that they should not. But the truth is, we are in a fallen and sinful world, and you will likely experience some level of mistreatment from others, maybe never to the degree that Paul and Silas do certainly on an emotional, verbal level. But by God's grace, what you and I do have control over is our response to this. By God's grace and power, we still can guard our reaction to injustice and suffering and evil. Because our Savior promised never to leave us or forsake us. He remains with us through his Spirit to give peace 
The New Testament letter that Paul would eventually write back to what becomes the established church at Philippi, we know the book of Philippians, it was written while Paul was in prison sometime later, and it is often referred to as the epistle of joy. Because Philippians so celebrates the joy that God gives to his people, that Christ infuses in his body. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ have joy. And Paul speaks of joy or rejoicing in some way in every chapter of Philippians multiple times throughout the book. He is giving them a message about joy over and over again. You are my joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Always familiar lines from the book of Philippians. A church that was born out of Paul and Silas rejoicing, singing, praying while they were suffering agony became a church that was marked by this deep, resilient, lasting, all-surpassing joy that people had in their hearts. God powerfully fills his people with joy even in the midst of pain and suffering and injustice. We, We can read countless stories of martyrs throughout the history of the church who were praising God even as they were suffering and their bodies were in the grip of death, yet within their souls there was still this unquenchable peace and joy that the Savior had rescued them, that they now counted a privilege to be able to suffer with him, and that is the supernatural transforming power of God that, friends, is at work in you and I to no less measure to transform us and to help us endure suffering and pain. All right, let's read the last section of this chapter. Verse 25 again, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The Prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, saw that the prison doors were open. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. When it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let those men go. Presumably they felt like they'd suffered enough. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. They took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. 
All right, that last part. There again is Paul going back to reminding them that he is a Roman citizen, that what they have done is wrong, and the magistrates come and apologize. They spend time at Lydia's house. They encourage them, and they depart. We could look at this passage as another stunning example of God's power in terms of him causing the earthquake. God brings an earthquake to, to free his servants. But there's something else going on here because Paul is more concerned for the soul of the man who held them in that dungeon than he was with his own freedom, and he doesn't flee when the earthquake comes. Instead, he says to the jailer, we're all here. This, this again, helps us get a little picture of this prison. There is darkness. The, the jailer has to call for lights because he assumes they are gone in the darkness of the night, and it's when light is brought in that all the prisoners are standing there, and Paul says, we're here. Paul's passion is for this man, and that's when God shows his power. This, this jailer had the right in that moment to go whew, seize Paul and Silas, put them back in custody, and be able to preserve his job, not worry about his life being threatened in any way. But God radically changed his heart. This jailer who was so consumed with himself to the point that he was ready to take his own life, then face the prospect of admitting failure before the magistrates in town, admitting that he had lost his prisoners and suffering whatever punishment would come with that, now is trembling, experiencing the conviction of God. He is now crying out for a, a way of salvation. He has heard that these men have preached something about a savior and, and, and perhaps something about sin. And, and perhaps he's heard some of the praying and the singing. And this guard is trembling on his knees before his prisoners. And they are about to become brothers in Christ. I would suggest to you again, we know this story from, from having read it many times. You've, you've around the church throughout your life, you, you can go back to Sunday school recounting of Paul and Silas in prison, laughing and singing and praising God, the, the, the children's song I can remember from way back. I, I would submit to you, if we, if we could read this story afresh and not know the ending, when Paul and Silas are singing and praying in that dungeon, if we didn't know the rest of the story, we might be tempted toward just a bit of cynicism at that point. We might smile politely and think, maybe they could do it, but I'm not sure I could. I mean, everything has gone wrong since they've gone to Philippi. Yes, God's, God's done an amazing thing in Lydia, but then the servant girl, yep, she was set free, but, but this has just gone from bad to worse. They've been imprisoned and beaten. And yet in an instant, God answered their prayers and transformed everything. He transforms the heart of this man and his family, the one who has been keeping them, who ordered them to be bound in stocks, who has caused them to endure such suffering through that night. The power of God changed that jailer and apparently his loved ones. And, and so a guy who, whose duty and obligation was to roam, has now been saved by Jesus Christ and radically saved. A guy who wasn't when they were praying and singing, coming down with a, a torch and saying, tell me about this Jesus. 
I want to understand who this Jesus I want to know why you're praying and singing. There's no indication that, that that was on this jailer's mind. And then the earthquake comes, and he is under overwhelming conviction from the power of God that there's something happening here that is so far out of his control, and he falls to his knees, and he pleads. Before that night was over, the jailer who was responsible for locking Paul and Silas in stocks in a dungeon is now caring for them in his home. He's washing their wounds. He's setting a meal before them. This is, this is the stuff of, of a Hollywood script, right? This is, this is the stuff that, that those, one of those beautiful endings that we cheer for where the, the underdogs come out on top and even the villain is turned around in the story and realizes he was wrong and becomes a good guy in the end. This isn't a script. This is the power of God. This is what God does to bring sinners, to bring the least of these, to bring those who are far off and to bring them near and to change them by the power of his gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the gospel, and it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the word of the cross. It is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This gospel is powerful and it changes lives. A few verses later, Paul says, it, none of this, none of these stories in the book of Acts that Luke tells you about were about me and smooth talk and cunning wisdom. My words and my message were always a demonstration of God's spirit and God's power. God is the one who did this. Paul had to at least have a little sense of what it was like for that jailer when he fell to the ground trembling because Paul had been there and done that himself. What it's like to suddenly come under the, the conviction and the weight standing in the presence of God's work. Paul well remembered how he had been hateful, murderous, and didn't care about the people whose lives he was ruining and how he fell to his knees, blinded when he was confronted by Jesus on that road to Damascus. That jailer could not quench God's power, he's being confronted, and he and his family are for the first time hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are saved. A Gentile woman, a slave girl set free, a Roman jailer radically transformed. The gospel of Jesus Christ arrives in Europe into this important city with great power. A city that had been given over to Satan, God begins this radical transformation. Think about it, and, and, and that church at Philippi was still a small group of people. From what we can gather here from Acts 16, this is still a, a tiny group in the midst of a godless, idolatrous, metropolis. There's no synagogue. As best as we can understand, there's no real core group with a deep knowledge of the Old Testament who can carry on and, 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 and help ground them. They are the most childlike of believers, learning of the wonders of the Messiah and being saved from their sin. If you think about that, when Paul, when we get to chapter 17, and, and, and not too long after this, leaves Philippi and moves on to Thessalonica, Cynic might think, ah, I wonder what's going to happen. Can they really survive this? The enemy is alive and well in Philippi. He's already 
gone to great pains to try to crush Paul and Silas. They are up against demons and a pagan government and an environment of, of hyper-toleration that just hates them. How does this, how's this little church in Philippi, they've barely got roots established. How do they survive? Years later, Paul wrote that letter of Philippians. Remember right at the beginning what he says to the church at Philippi? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, plural, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is, as he's writing to the Philippians again from imprisonment, I, I am confident of this. I was there when he began that good work in you, Philippian believers, and he will see it through to completion. Against every earthly odd, the Apostle Paul had his confidence, not in, in what he had taught them. He'd, he'd only been there for a short time, not in who necessarily came after him. His confidence was in the power of God. If God could open the heart of a Gentile woman, if God could set a, a demon-possessed girl free, if God could radically change the heart of the, the cruel city jailer, he would, by his power, preserve his saints and bring glory to himself. You and I have no room for this sort of cynical, doubting, can God really do this in my life? Can God really help me overcome this sin? Can God really save my child? Can God really fix our marriage? Because our God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, as Paul says. And, and he says in Ephesians 1, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe that's not measured out by our standards, but according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that, that Scripture now says is veiled to you and I. That's the power of God that the New Testament calls you and I to believe in, to know is real. So what are you praying for? What are you believing God for? I, I, I am not jumping into some sort of name-it-and-claim-it materialistic sort of laundry list here, but what is it that you are pleading with God for help in? This is far more than, than just sort of the name-it-and-claim-it culture, Christian culture. This is, this is a God who longs to empower his daughters and his sons to resist temptation, to experience freedom from anxiety, to serve difficult people, to love your enemies, to walk by his spirit, to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, to make disciples of all nations, to love your wife as Christ loves the church, to honor your husband as the church honors Christ, to bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, to be content in any and every circumstances. This is a God who not only calls us to these things, but empowers us by his spirit, by his presence, by Christ in us to do these power of God that raised Jesus from the dead and that began a radical transformation in a pagan city to plant a church now graciously enables you and I to walk as children of light and to believe in his goodness and to pray with faith and to trust that God's ways are good and we can hope in him and we can rest in him. And that power of God should be a massive antidote to the foolishness of our cynicism that 
and questions. Is he really in it for good for me? He is, and he is powerful enough to bring about what he promises. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to see it to completion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Again, thank you for showing us the birth of the church in Philippi, for reminding us of the miraculous nature of that body of believers coming into existence, for reminding us again that there was intense hatred and opposition against the early believers. And there was every reason for them to to fail, to not grow, to not become established as a church. And yet we are clear from Scripture that it, it not only became a body of believers, it became a joyful body of believers. One that, in the midst of suffering, was learning time and time again to to still rejoice, to still find hope in Christ. Father, help us to be like that. Help us as believers here in Lorton and Woodbridge and all around Northern Virginia that we would be a people who who believe in a mighty God, who by his power accomplishes his purposes and who works in us, who hears our cries, who longs to pour out his spirit on us to fill us and to empower us to live differently in the midst of our own culture that is turning more and more, it seems, each day away from truths of the gospel. Cause us to not lose heart, to not lose heart over sickness, disease, over hatred, over injustice, over the bitterness, division that we see all around us. Lord, we we grieve at these things because we believe that it is by your design. We, We are made in your image, and so where there is evil and injustice, we rightly grieve as those who bear your image. But cause us also as your people to have hope to believe in a mighty God who has demonstrated time and time again. And you are able to, to work in and through your church to change lives, to radically spread the gospel, to bring transformation. Pray that if there's anyone listening to this in this moment, Lord, we ask that you would do the gracious work that you did in the heart of Lydia to open the heart to believe what was the simple truth when that jailer said to Paul, what what do I do? How am I to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would save even some who watch now and, and who are longing for hope and peace, that they would believe that there is a Savior Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for sin, who rose again, who offers to them forgiveness and peace and joy and eternal life, if they will but turn from their sin and trust in him. Thank you for the power of the gospel. Thank you that you have entrusted it to the care of your people. Help us to be faithful this week as good stewards of that message, we pray in Jesus' name.